pray with me this morning? May the words of my heart and the meditation of all of our minds be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I used to work with a gentleman who was a master storyteller, and he liked to tell stories about growing up in the 50s and 60s. He was one of three brothers, and his father had an interesting way of dealing with punishment for the boys. When one of them would get caught doing something wrong, he'd bring all three boys into the living room, and they'd all get it. Each one of them. Now, this felt fairly unfair to the other two innocent parties. But the father would explain it this way. You boys get away with so much stuff I never know about. When I catch one of it, y'all three deserve a licking. Right? What's interesting about that, many things interesting about it, right? In decades of corporal punishment for children. But what's interesting about that is what that must have done to those three brothers. On the one hand, you can imagine the, the two other brothers letting the one brother ha- let it ha- have it afterwards, right? But also it kind of bound them in a certain way to one another, didn't it? A certain way in which they became a unit. They began to depend on each other. If, if one of the brothers saw one of the other brothers about to do something wrong, they might have said, hey man, what's up? This isn't just your backside on the line. This is my backside on the line. We're in this together. We're dependent on one another. We're unity. And I think that's what we're hearing, actually, in this letter to the Ephesians. There's a kind of interdependence or dependency that Paul really wants to drive home. In fact, I think he's kind of obsessed with it. And I want to help to unpack that with you this morning. You heard that passage beautifully read today, but I can't preach from just one passage in Ephesians. I really have to preach the whole book of Ephesians. So buckle in. Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome, we believe, to the church in Ephesus where he arrives at in Acts chapter 19. You can read about that. And he's writing to a multi-ethnic congregation. Jews and Gentiles apparently have come together here in Ephesus in a city that is known for its pagan rituals, for its worship of all the gods. And so when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he sets it up in sort of chapters 1 through 3 and then 4 and following. And in chapters 1 and 3, Paul essentially lays out the gospel once again. He reminds them of everything that God has done in Jesus Christ for them. And he does it in only that beautiful way that Paul can, right? He uses this amazing language. You can open your Bible if you want. Check me on this. He says things like this. God chose you. Mm. God adopted you. Come on. (laughs) God gave to us freely, Paul says. I love this one. Once you were dead, but now you have been brought back to life. Once you were far off, and now you have been brought near. Ooh. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now fellow citizens, Paul says. And in verse 10... The climax to God's plan all along, Paul says, was to bring all things together in Christ. 
to make all of us, are you ready for it? A unity. A community, because you can't spell community without unity. (laughs) That's corny, sorry. Because of what God the Father has done in and through Christ, we are now, we, the church, are unity. Now you have to remember, and you know this, right? Because we've taught it to you. When Paul says you, he doesn't mean you. He means y'all. Because he's writing to a church, he's writing to a group of people. So we have to change our individualistic minds to think collectively when we read Paul. Now chapter 4 and following is a kind of turning. And we know it's a turning because it begins this way. Therefore, Paul says. So therefore implies to everything that's come in verse, chapters 1 through 3. Because of all God has done in Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit at work within you, to make you a unity, to bring all things together under Christ, therefore, he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, we treat that word worthy sometimes as deserving. Live a life deservingly, deservedly. Act like you deserve it. Well, we know we can't really act like we deserve it. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's been given to us. And what biblical scholars tell us is that word worthy, we really shouldn't think about it as deserving. We should think about it more like it was used in that day. It's almost like an economic metaphor. It's an economic metaphor that means something more like equilibrium. So we might say, this is what Paul's saying. Live your life, therefore, because of all that God has done in Jesus Christ to make us a unity, Jew and Gentile, lost, far away, brought back, once a stranger, now a fellow citizen, because of all that, live into the equilibrium of God's call on our lives. Live into that, into that balance. Live into it. And what is the hallmark of God's call? We just heard about it for three chapters. It's unity of the body of Christ. Live into that unity. And then verse 3, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Now this is an interesting paradox in Scripture. Because God has made unity possible, not us. God did it. You get that? But then somehow in God's amazing paradoxical way, he invites us to be a part of that. That we can do something to continue that unity, or maybe we can do something to destroy it. Make every effort, Paul says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit, capital S, what God has done, but make every effort to participate and preserve what God has done by the peace that ties you all together. Live into the equilibrium of God's call on your life. We're in this together. Just like those three brothers. (laughs) We're in it together. And then it goes on, and I love this. Because you are one body, one spirit, called by God to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God in the Father. That's a lot of ones. That's a lot of unity. Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Do you sense it? Paul's a little obsessed. I told you about that. It's important that we get this issue of oneness and unity here in Ephesians. 
It's important that we get it right. Otherwise, I'm afraid that we're going to read chapter 4 and following as a list of do's and don'ts for individuals. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? Here in the western United States. Because chapter 4 and following has got a lot of lists of do's and don'ts. But if we don't understand unity correctly, we're going to turn chapter 4 and following and maybe all of faith into a list of do's and don'ts for individuals. But the good news is if we get this unity thing right, then we have the chance of understanding chapters 4 and following, not as a list of do's and don'ts for individuals, but as a warning of what disunity looks like. Now that's different. Are you with me? Instead of just a list of do's and don'ts, and you can read it like that, I think what Paul is trying to say to us here is, this is what the community looks like when there's, no dis, when there's no unity. This is what disunity looks like, Paul's saying. This is what it looks like. And if you see that happening, then take off that old self like a dirty set of workout clothes. Anything that threatens the unity of the body must be cast off. Paul says to us. Now one theologian, when writing about Ephesians, puts it this way. In Ephesians, we, the body of Christ, the body of the church, if I can use that word there, we not only hear about a God who created unity, chapters 1 through 3, but in chapters 4 and following, we are called to live into the reality of God's own self. Live into the reality of God's own self. Now, what in the world does that mean? Glad you asked. We are to live into the reality that looks just like God's own Trinitarian self. And you've heard us talk about this before, some of you. God is a paradox. God, we say, is one in three, or three in one. We sing about it, right? It's a hallmark of Orthodox Christian belief. God is Father. Who else? Nice. Good you are awake. God is three in one. God is indivisible, but also three. God is unity in diversity. God is the one who depends on all three to be God. The Father cannot be separate from the Son or the Spirit and all the permutations of that. And each one of the persons of the, the Trinity, we say, makes space or room for the others. There is unity in diversity. And that is what we are called to live into as the body of Christ. We are to live into that we are to look like the triune God as the body of Christ. Are you with me? I love this verse 25, sort of B. You know how they do that second half of the verse? Verse 25B in chapter 4 says this. We are parts of each other in the same body. Oh, I could meditate on that one all day. We are parts of each other... In the same body. Which means, you ready? I need you. 
and you need me. No amens on that one at all, Pastor Joe. And old folks need young folks. And young folks need old folks. And the people on the right need the people on the left. The people on the left need the people on the right. And babies need everybody, and that's okay because we all want to hold babies. <laughs> we need each other. We need each other, but here's the truth. I don't like that. I don't want to need you. Is that a good wine? I don't want to. I don't want to need you, frankly. And neither do you want to need me, if you're honest. For a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons, you hear me harp on this all the time. Again, especially in the West here in the United States, that we hold up the ideal healthy human being as autonomous and individual and doesn't need anyone, doesn't need anything. The hero. The one who rises above. But you know, even the Marvel superheroes need each other. Have you noticed that lately? <laughs> even the Marvel superheroes need one another. They can't do it alone. We need one another. But in our culture, in our society, culture disdains dependency. It disdains neediness. Watch out for them. They're kind of needy. Don't be needy. People don't like that. Right? Be, be cool. Be distant. He texted you. Well, whatever you do, don't text him right back. You'll look needy. Right, young people? That's what they tell me. I don't know. If my wife texts me, I text her immediately back. <laughs> not only do we not like this idea of needing each other, I'm convinced that some of us don't believe it. And the reason I think some of us don't believe it is because we're here, but we're not here. Have you ever been talking to someone, and they, they, or they're, they're talking to you, actually, and at some point they say, you know, you're listening, but you're not listening. You're here, but you're not really here. Have you ever got that before? Some of us have started to treat the church that way. Maybe we've always treated the church that way, the body, the unity. We almost treat the church like a spiritual smorgasbord. Remember those before COVID? Cafeterias, Golden Corral, anyone, anyone, anyone? <laughs> and we come and we say, oh, that looks tasty. I'll have a little bit of that. Ooh, that looks kind of good. I'll do a little bit of that. But I don't want to get too full, Pastor. I'm not staying for the whole meal. And I'm pretty sure I don't have anything to bring to the meal. Some of us are here, but we're not really here. We're not really engaged. We're not really part of the community. Now, I'm not, some of you do too much, so let's just say that. I'm not talking about feeling guilty. I'm just talking to some of us today who maybe know what I'm talking about. You're here, but you're not really here. You're not, you haven't really found your place. You haven't really found that place of spiritual formation and discipleship and growth where not only you are getting something, but you are giving something. Some of you are here, but you're not really here. And then another phenomenon that has taken place post-COVID is this. More and more people, and I'm not talking about Paz Naz now. I mean, it might be. But I'm talking about churches around the nation and the world. 
Remember, I work at a seminary, so I hear stories all the time from different denominations, from different pastors. And they say this, many of my people have settled into worship online out of convenience. There's lots of reasons to do worship online. There might be health issues. There might be physical disabilities. This could be emotional health. This could be physical health. You can't get here. You shouldn't be here. It's not safe for you. That's why we stream. We're glad you're here today. Or maybe you're coming from another country. <laughs> maybe you just really love Paz and Az, right? And you, you, get, you do your own thing, but you're in Wisconsin or something, and you watch. But let me just say this. With pastors all over the nation... <laughs> If you've settled into worship online because of convenience, it's time to come home. Because I can't be a unity with you when you're out there. And you can't be a unity with me when you're out there. Again, I'm talking to a certain group of people, okay? It's time to come home. But we don't like unity, essentially, right? Because we're just so different. <laughs> and that's okay. Because God gives us the gift of diversity. You may remember a number of weeks ago, I don't remember exactly what it was, Pastor Joe, but you preached on the gift of diversity. And talked about the fact that the world is watching the way in which the church deals with diversity. And if we experience it as a gift and we live into it, then we are a testimony to the world. If we got left and right and black and white and everything else in between and rich and poor, if we've got that kind of diversity among us, the world is going to look and say, what in the world is going on? Because the world is about polarization. The world is about get in your club and get in your lane and stay there. And if we are the body of Christ who embraces diversity, that is a witness to the world. So we don't like it. Can we just confess that this morning? We don't love diversity. It's hard. We're different. It's difficult. It takes work. But here's something that I believe that I think Pastor Paul in Ephesians believes. That there's some kind of relationship between the unity of the body and the growth of the body. There's some kind of positive relationship between unity of the body and growth of the body. Now reverse engineer that statement. If the body isn't growing, maybe we don't have unity. Maybe we're not on the same page or in the same book <laughs> or chapter or something. We don't all have to be the same, but we've got to have enough unity that creates the opportunity for growth among us. So let's review. We are one, not because of something we have done, but because of something God has done. Chapters 1 through 3. And yet, we as the body are not stagnant. We're not done. We're not complete. We haven't arrived. The body still is a living organism that grows into, are you ready, what it is already, or it doesn't. That's another paradox. God has made us one and then said, keep growing. Don't get stagnant. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Which means that we could. And we can. And we do. Remember verse 3. 
in chapter 1. Make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Make every effort. The Spirit started it, but now we're invited into it. The great paradox of Scripture. So how do we become a stagnant community? Well, we see and hear lots of different ways in Ephesians 4 and other places. I told you, this is not just a list of do's and don'ts for individuals. It's, it's, it's sort of a warning. This is what it looks like. When unity is not happening, you're going to see all these things amongst you. But I want to focus on a theme that appears in chapter 4 in several different forms, but seven times in chapter 4. And the theme is, are you ready for it? Lying. Not lying down like a Nazarene afternoon nap. That clearly is sanctioned by the Lord, blessed, made holy. <laughs> lying, the telling of an untruth. And I want to suggest to you today that Pastor Paul is saying we destroy unity when we lie. Chapter 4 says this, you can look it up. We are not to be deceitful. We are not to be scheming. Oh, I'm glad there's never any schemes at church. We're not to play tricks on one another. We're not to mislead one another. We are to, verse 17, speak the truth with love. So how do we lie? There's examples there. How else might we in the 21st century here in the United States of America in Pasadena, California, lie? Well, just some suggestions. Not a complete list. We lie when we gossip. You know what gossip is, right? Staying a fact without the facts. When we judge one another. Oh, do you know that so-and-so doesn't believe in... Oh, do you know so-and-so doesn't support... Do you know they gave money to... I heard they dance. Saying cruel things about one another is the way we lie. Paul says it this way, don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. I don't think he's talking about swearing, friends. I'm sure there was swearing in the ancient Near East. I don't know what that was. Seems like a good research project for me to do. I think what he means by foul words is what he follows up with. Only let words come out of your mouth that build one another up. I think we lie when we ascribe intent to someone when we really don't know their motivations. Anybody seen that happen in church? No hands anywhere. You see, when we do any of these things to any of the people in the body of Christ, we're saying through our behavior that these people are not worthy and don't deserve our respect. And that, my friends, is a lie. Because we are all made in the image of God and therefore all deserve and are worthy of one another's respect. But here's the other thing. We lie to ourselves when we tell ourselves that we don't need each other. We lie to ourselves when we tell ourselves that we don't need one another. And I think we lie when we withhold ourselves from unity and communion. Community. Because that's just the behavioral representation of the lie, I don't need you and you don't need me. When we lie, 
we undermine the community, the body, the unity that we first received from God. We are not making every effort to preserve unity. We're working actively against it. And this is what Paul means, I believe, when he says we grieve the Holy Spirit. Or how you heard it read today, and this makes it even more personal, don't make the Holy Spirit unhappy. Wow, that's like a sucker punch to the gut. I could make the Holy Spirit unhappy. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit stops loving you, by the way. But we, the body of Christ, when we do anything that works against the unity that God has created in Christ Jesus through the power of the Spirit at work within us, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We make the Holy Spirit unhappy. So what are we to do in order to live into the unity that we first received from God? How do we embrace our dependency on one another? So this is Brad's this is Brad's movement. Therefore, all that stuff I said before, now, <laughs> how do we live into unity? Well, if you go to chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Imitate God like dearly loved children. Oh, that's, that's beautiful, isn't it? By the way, just pause for a second, bracket this. You know you're God's dearly loved children, right? If you don't know that, come see me after service. I hope every Sunday you leave feeling like God loves me. God is nuts about me. No matter what I do, even if I've been grieving the Holy Spirit, guess what? God's ridiculously in love with you. Because you can't do anything to stop that. You can make him sad, apparently. But you cannot stop God from loving you. Amen? Oh, that relationship keeps us going, doesn't it? Imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, it says. Follow the example of Christ who gave himself up as a sacrificial offering. That's how we keep the unity in the body. I came across this quote from Martin Luther, the great um, uh, reformer. Martin Luther said this. It's a characteristic of God's love that it does not find its object, but creates it. Now, what does that mean exactly? I think it means this. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. Some of you are less lovable than others, if I'm frank. <laughs> God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He also doesn't love you because you have made yourself lovable. I've heard so many people so many times in my clinical work or my pastoral work, well, once I get my act together, then I'll go have a relationship with God, right? Like, so, like we can somehow make ourselves lovable to God. You can't do that. He loves us into being lovable. Woo! <laughs> We become lovable because of the love that God gives us. Are you with me now? If we want to live in the unity described in Ephesians, we can't just love the lovable. We're supposed to imitate God, right? We can't just love the lovable, nor can we try to get people to change so they're more lovable. As we talk about 
opening these doors and making these safe spaces for people of all ages to come, we got to take that seriously. Some of us miss the days when the, the, the lines were clear in the sand, or we knew what the Methodists believed, and we knew what the Presbyterians believed, and the Lutherans, nobody knew what they believed, but they believed something different. But now we live in a post-denominational time. We live in a time when many people, if not most people in the United States, have not been raised in Christian tradition. And we live in this exciting multicultural world where many people, if they've been raised in faith, it's not Christian faith. And when they walk in the door, are we going to love them? Or are we going to say, well, first change and then we'll love you? We, too, get to love people into being lovable. We love them right where they are. Just like God loves us right where we are. And aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad about that? Here's a funny thing, too, right? When you love someone, and I say you love them into being lovable, it's not really that they change. You change. You ever notice that? <laughs> I mean, they may change over time in a lot of exciting, who knows what spirit-led ways, but when you love someone, you change. You change in relationship to them. Something happens inside of you. So you want even a little more practical help when it comes to loving? You want just a little bit more? Okay, I'll give it to you. How about serving one another? How about serving one another? I love this story. There's an old Hasidic story of a rabbi who had a conversation with the Lord about heaven and hell. I will show you hell, said the Lord, and led the rabbi into a room in the middle of which was a very big round table. The people sitting at it were famished and desperate. In the middle of the table, there was an enormous pot of stew, more than enough for everyone. The smell of the stew was delicious and made the rabbi's mouth water. The people around the table were holding spoons with very long handles. Each person found that it was just possible to reach the pot to take a spoonful of the stew, but because the handle of the spoon was longer than anyone's arm, no one could get the food into his or her mouth. The rabbi saw that their suffering was indeed terrible. Now I will show you heaven, said the Lord. And they went into another room exactly the same as the first. There was the same big round table and the same enormous pot of stew. The people as before were equipped with the same long-handled spoons. But here they were well-nourished, plump, laughing and talking together. At first, the rabbi could not understand. It's simple, but it requires a certain skill, said the Lord. You see, they have learned to feed each other. As we go to prayer this morning, we're going to do it like we normally do it. You can come down here and be anointed with oil for healing if you'd like to. But I really want to encourage us today to make this moment a moment of confession. Because we're at Lent, and Lent is a time of confession and repentance. 
This morning I want to ask you this question. Do you, do we need to confess that in some ways we have been engaging in behaviors that have been grieving the Holy Spirit? Have you, have we been engaged in acts that bring disunity to the body of Christ? Have we been lying to one another, lying about one another, and lying to ourselves that we don't need one another, that we don't depend on one another, that we can't really do this thing all by ourselves? I want to invite you to come and confess that today. And by the way, there might be someone here today who's never actually confessed and become part of the unity to begin with. Who doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus? I'd be super excited if there was someone here who didn't have a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that weird to say? I don't know, maybe. Guess what? If that's you, God has already made a way. Chapter 1 through 3. God has already brought you who are far away near, and all you have to do is say, yes. I'm in. Thank you. <laughs> so you can come this morning as well. We'll have pastors and prayer team members, and we'll talk with you afterwards, wherever you are in this journey. But I want to make this moment, this moment of confession, this altar time, about Lent, about repentance. And I want to remind you, though, before you come, that repentance and confession at Lent doesn't just mean feeling guilty or bad. Repentance is from the Greek word metanoia. It means to turn. So repentance means to change our hearts and change our lives. So if you come down here to confess, maybe what you're going to say when you stand up and leave this altar is, you know what, I need to be here, here. Going forward, I need to be here, here. I need to find my space and get involved, not only in my own discipleship and spiritual formation, but I have something to offer to the body of Christ. Please don't make my spirituality puny by holding yourself out. I need to hear from you. I need you in my life and vice versa. So I want to make this time a time of confession, corporate confession, individual confession, which is a form of healing, which this, is, which, which this time is also. So as we sing, come.